the first reading is taken from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and can be found on page 58 of the Pew Bibles. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I was at Lord's yesterday. At least England didn't lose there. <laughs> right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your written word of Scripture may now and always be our rule your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. After a break to celebrate Pentecost last Sunday, we are today continuing our series, as Simon's already mentioned, on how we hear from God and the different ways that he relates to us. And as you've already picked up, I'm sure that this morning, our focus is on how God speaks in the ordinary, the everyday business 
of living. And our reading from Luke's Gospel that we've just had takes us to the heart of a domestic situation, one I'm sure that many of us can relate to. In John's Gospel, we find that Mary and Martha lived in Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, in a house which is said to be Martha's, and she's probably the older of the two sisters and the hostess. Along with their brother Lazarus, they obviously knew Jesus well and had opened their home to him. So you can just imagine the scene, can't you? Jesus, the honoured guest, had come. Martha, wanting to be a good hostess, was rushing around, preparing the meal, tidying the house, laying the table, making sure that everything was just so. And at the very least, she would have expected some smidgen of help from Mary. But where was she? As we know, she was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And finally, the pressure gets to Martha, and she snaps. This really is too much. So going to Jesus, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Can't you just hear it? And Jesus' reply is tender. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it won't be taken away from her. And here Jesus contrasts Martha's fretting about many things with the one thing that is really needful, that waiting patiently on the Lord is more important than all the bustling busyness. And it is this attitude of dependence on Jesus which will not be taken away from Mary. And it resulted later in her expressing her love and gratitude to Jesus when she poured expensive perfume over his feet. On this occasion, which came after the raising of Lazarus, Martha, we are told, was still doing the serving, but we're not told if her attitude has changed. For what is key here is not so much what we do, but how we do it. And for the ancient among you, like me, you might remember the old song, which goes, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Yes, yes, one or two nods. And the last bit, you sing that three times, and the last bit is, that's what gets results. Yeah. And it exposes the tension at the heart of this story. And, our own, and it comes out in our theme for this morning. How can we relate to God in the hurly-burly of our normal, everyday living? And one person for whom this issue was very important was somebody called Brother Lawrence, who some of you may have heard of, a 17th century French Carmelite lay brother. Having been invalided out of the army, 
he became to be in charge of the Priory Kitchen in Paris. And throughout the surrounding area, he became known as a friendly, attractive person of unusual spiritual depth. And later in his life, he was interviewed about his spirituality. And the results of these interviews were written down and later published after his death under the title, The Practice of the Presence of God. What a lovely title. The Practice of the Presence of God. And in it, he says this. The time of action does not differ from that of prayer. I possess God as peacefully in the bustle of my kitchen, where sometimes several people are asking me for different things at the same time, as I do upon my knees before the Blessed Sacrament. This practice of the presence of God must stem from the heart, from love rather than from the understanding and speech. In the way of God, thought counts for little. Do love does everything, and it is not needful to have great things to do. I turn my little omelette in the pan for the love of God. When it is finished, if I have nothing else to do, I prostrate myself on the ground and worship my God who gave me the grace to make it, after which I rise happier than a king. People look for ways of learning how to love God. They hope to attain it by I know not how many different practices. Is it not a shorter and more direct way to do everything for the love of God, to make use of all the tasks one's lot in life demands to show him that love and to maintain his presence within the communion of our heart with his. There is nothing complicated about it. One has simply to turn to it honestly and openly. As one becomes less detractive and more centred on God, faith, hope and love will grow. Last Sunday and last Tuesday, if you were here at the brilliant and lovely transformation evening we had, we celebrated Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit and the birth of the church. And when all those people were together in Jerusalem on that first Pentecost, they were gathered there to celebrate the festival of Shavuot, the festival of weeks, which commemorates the giving of the Torah, the law, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And in modern-day Judaism, alongside God's revelation through his word of the law, specifically expressed in the Ten Commandments, is God's revelation in creation. The sacred energy of the first let there be, through which God spoke and the world came into being, still reverberates in the deepening of the twilight, the flight of a swallow and the stillness of the heart. It has been said that the true meaning of the declaration, 
God is one, is that we can find God through the holiness which exists in every single thing. And it was such an understanding that inspired Rabbi Kalonymus Kalman Shapiro to write in 1942 from the horrors of the Warsaw Ghetto that since God's revelation permeates all creation, a person can hear God's voice from the chirping of the birds, the mooing of the cows, the voices and the tumult of human beings. It is audible, he said, even within the evil, though in a very distorted manner. His writings were discovered after the war, buried in the ruins of the ghetto, and are a wonderful testament to spiritual courage and an indestructible tenacity of faith and hope. With each of the three people we've thought about so far, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, Brother Lawrence in his kitchen, and Rabbi Shapiro in the horrors of the ghetto. The common thread is the deliberate action, the deliberate decision to spend time seeking God. Wherever we are, whatever we are doing, whatever the circumstances of our lives at that time. However briefly, to take time to stop. And this attitude is caught beautifully in this well-known poem by W.H. Davis, which again, I'm sure a lot of you will know. What is this life, if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. No time to stand beneath the boughs and stare as long as sheep and cows. No time to see when woods we pass where squirrels hide their nuts in grass. No time to see in broad daylight, streams full of stars like skies at night. No time to turn at beauty's glance and watch her feet, how they can dance. No time to wait till her mouth can enrich that smile her eyes began. A poor life this, if full of care, we have no time to stand and stare. But for many today, to stand and stare will be seen as wasting time. Last week I read in two separate newspapers articles about a new book by an American math professor called Jordan Ellenberg, and the book was called How Not to Be Wrong. The Hidden Maths of Everyday Life. It's possible that you read the articles yourself. Which takes time management to the absolute limit. And one of the examples he gives is arriving early at an airport for a flight. As he says, if you've never missed a flight, you're not doing it right. What we should do, he says, is calculate the negative units of time wasted in airports and try to eliminate them by choosing the optimal time to arrive. This is the precise moment which minimizes wasted time while keeping your chance of catching your flight in play. 
And he then goes on apparently to apply his ideas to other areas of life. As for him, wasting time is the cardinal sin. And as Rosie Millard wrote in the I newspaper, from built-in tumble dryers to remote-controlled garden sprinklers, ready-made food and even the spell check on our computers, domestic living has become utterly streamlined in order to protect us from the toxic notion of wasting time. She then goes on to say, but surely it is just as important to live your life in the moment rather than working out the optimum time to arrive at the airport. The danger with his theory is that in putting every single hour through a mathematical algorithm, life becomes so functional that one forgets that drifting around quite happily, picking up a book, glancing through it or putting it down, is a key part of a pleasurable existence. And she concludes by saying that when she applies the professor's wisdom to her own crammed, time-poor, frantic lifestyle, the only moment she is relaxed and at peace with herself is when the time-saving devices are nowhere near her and she is technically wasting time. Taking time to stand and stare. Being in and taking time to enjoy the moment. And this is something that children seem to do naturally, which seems to get lost as we grow older. It was something that Jesus was very acutely aware of when he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't just mean here that we must have a childlike trust in God, but also he means we are to enter and receive life as a child. Children have a great ability to receive life as a gift. They're at ease with play. Their minds are fine-tuned to wonder and to be able to dwell completely in the present moment. All too often, we are concerned about what has happened in the past or what could happen in the future. And we miss the present moment so that it, when it comes to the present, we're not present. Stephen Cotterell says this in his inspiring little book, Do Nothing to Change Your Life. Time can also be the eternity of a single moment. And time on earth could be lived as one eternal moment after another until beyond death we enter into the eternal now of God's eternal presence. To experience time in this way is a taste of heaven. It is an invitation to live life differently. Such a way of experiencing time brings the possibility of new delight and new joy in the people and things around us. It offers the possibility 
of opening oneself up to the amazement and becoming the little child you must become if you are to enter God's kingdom. So on your deathbed, you are not grasping for a few more moments, but at peace, dwelling in the final moment of chronological life and welcoming the eternal now that has all been leading up to. For when people say they are children of God, this is what they mean. Living and enjoying life as a child in readiness for heaven, experiencing heaven now. And as I was preparing this, I was very much aware of a deep desire to be more like Mary, to be more like Rabbi Shapiro, and Brother Lawrence, and in the way they lived each moment in God's presence. But the reality is that I fear I am far more like the fourth person we've considered, Martha, distracted by many things, forever concerned with what needs to be done next. Yet the reality is that this present moment is the only thing we possess with any certainty. For we do not know what is going to happen. And this was vividly brought home to me on Wednesday morning of last week, when I was sitting outside Waitrose in the cafe area, relaxing, watching the world go by, when I was suddenly the victim of a daring smash and grab raid. A seagull swooped down, spilt my coffee, and flew up with my Chelsea bun, from which I'd had just one bite. It all happened so quickly, leaving me with a half a cup of coffee and no bun. But the good thing was that it cheered up the big issue seller and gave us something to laugh about. And we were able to share that moment. And later, as I was sitting down preparing this, I was reminded of these words of Julian of Norwich. The fullness of joy is to behold God in everything. And it reminded me afresh that this needs to be a conscious action. One which Brother Lawrence realized had to be practiced. For the more that we do it, the more it becomes part of our everyday reality. He regularly used arrow prayers, short and to the point, to keep him in regular contact with God. Such as, God of love, I love you with all my heart. For as Rosie Millard's article highlighted, we live in a world where ever-increasing activity and busyness are considered virtues, and people's lives are ever more pressured. The question then for us is, can we find ways of remembering God during the day? And do we have ways of consciously connecting with God in whichever sphere of life he has called us to? Not just in the big moments, but in the ordinary, every day.
The verse we've highlighted for today, which is on your notice sheet, and you might like to look at this, at this for this moment, if you haven't already, sums this up. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. And perhaps that's something we might want to take home and think about. And I guess that the reality is that we will always be a mixture of Mary and Martha. But if we follow this advice from Romans, we will increasingly become more and more like Mary, rooted in Jesus, so that that utter dependence shines through our lives and witnesses to those around us as Mary's did. And I'd like to finish by reading this beautiful poem written by Anne, wherever she is, to thank her for it, and as we reflect upon our response to God's word to us. And this poem is called Peace Within Peace. I had forgotten that you desire me for love, lost sight of our days spent together, when holy and tender you poured your breath to the depth of my soul's chamber, where all waiting and wanting ceased, and you and I became peace within peace. But pressing demands invaded your presence, my mind space, my efforts, and seeing activity increase, you stepped aside and decreased like a caller, hopeful with loving intention. I saw your presence as pressure, another task vying for measure. Tell me, how can I come away with you now? Nighttime, daytime, anytime, when there is no time. So I conduct your business, live up to your image, think on you coolly, avoiding connection. Today I saw my reflection, dull and void of affection, hardened by stress. Saw you, ardent, burning flame of desire, bright with compassion, offering peace. Lover of my soul, I remember how you stole my heart with one glance of your eyes. Forgive me I had forgotten that you desire me for love. Lost sight of our days spent together, when holy and tender, you poured your breath to the depths of my soul's chamber. Allure me until all waiting and wanting increase. And you and I become peace within peace.
we will now sing to be in your presence, which the song begins, to be in your presence, not rushing away, to cherish each moment. And I pray that that will be our experience. <laughs>